the Christ of Christmas, is our study. Why is that? Well, there were two men who were walking from Jerusalem to a place called Emmaus. And as they were walking, they were discussing among themselves all the things that had taken place in the preceding days. And Jesus shows up. He does not reveal himself to them. He's in his glorified body. They are prevented from seeing who he really is. And he asks them what they're talking about. And they were wondering, how could you be in Jerusalem and not know all that had taken place these last couple of days? And they began to talk to him about Jesus and Nazarene, the prophet, the one they thought was going to redeem Israel. And that the women had gone to the, to the grave and he wasn't there. They were totally perplexed. And Jesus responds with these words. O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now think about that conversation. Jesus is going to explain to them, he's going to exposit the Old Testament in this seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. How's he going to do that? What's he going to say? And he begins with Moses and goes to the prophets. And as he's speaking the word of God to them, their hearts are burning because the book of Jeremiah tells us that God's word is like a fire. And when they finally recognized who he was, he disappeared. They journey on. Christ shows up with the other men and says these words to his men in verse 44 of Luke 24. These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He said to them, thus it is written that the Messiah would suffer and rise again and the dead, or from the dead, the third day. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, in order to preach the gospel effectively, you must understand the identity and the ministry of the Messiah. And so he takes them back to, the Mo to Moses, the Pentateuch, the law. He takes them back to the prophets. He takes them back to the Psalms. And I wonder what he said and how he said it. I wonder if he took them back to Genesis chapter 3, verse number 15, and explained to him, them that he was the seed of the woman. Maybe he did. I don't know. I wasn't there. 
But he had to go back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis. And the gospel was first presented in Genesis 3.15. So I would assume that our Lord would take them back to Genesis 3, verse number 15, and explain to them that he was that seed. And maybe he journeyed from Genesis 3 to Genesis 7 to talk about the ark and that he was the shelter or the safe house and that those who hide themselves in him escape the judgment of the world because the ark is a type of Christ, according to 1 Peter chapter 3. So maybe he did that. And maybe he journeyed to Genesis chapter 22 and talked about substitutionary atonement, that he was the substitute, that he was providing himself as the lamb on Mount Moriah, as foretold in Genesis chapter 22. So they would understand that Jesus Christ is the lamb of God. I don't know. Again, I wasn't there. And maybe he took them to Genesis chapter 28. He said, let me explain to you this stairway that descends out of heaven in, down to earth. And these angels ascending and descending, that's the only way to glory. And I'm that stairway. I'm that gate. I'm that door. I'm the only way to heaven. And maybe he journeyed from there to Genesis chapter 49 and said, remember Shiloh, the one to whom it belongs? That's what it means. The scepter belongs to, to me. I'm the king, the king of kings and, and lord of lords. I am that Shiloh. And maybe he said more in the book of Genesis. I don't know. But if he went through the law of Moses... He would move from Genesis to Exodus and say in Exodus chapter 12, there was this whole Passover scene. You remember that, right? They would say, oh, yeah, we remember. And everything about the blood of the lamb. Why? Because in Exodus chapter 12, that spotless lamb, that, that young lamb that you would take into your homes, that's me. And then he would take them from the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus Maybe, again, I wasn't there. But he would soon tell them about the book of Leviticus and the scapegoat and how the high priest would put his bloody hands on that scapegoat and take them out into the wilderness and it would all picture the removal of sins that would soon come through the arrival of the Messiah. You explained to them that I'm the scapegoat. I'm not just a spotless lamb. I'm the scapegoat. Because I'm the substitute. Because I'm the one to whom it belongs. I'm Shiloh. I am the seed of the woman. I am your only safe house. That's who I am. And then he takes them from the book of Genesis to the book of Exodus to the book of Leviticus to the book of Numbers and says, remember Numbers 24, the star? And that star will have a scepter in its hand. I'm the bright morning star. I am the day star that rises in your hearts. Remember when I was born and the glory of the Lord was shining all around? Well, that was the presence of God manifested in brilliant light. That's everything about me. 
I am the star. And then maybe he would take that from the book of Numbers to the book of Deuteronomy. And say, remember when Moses spoke in Deuteronomy 18 about a seer, a prophet, that would be greater than him, that you need to listen to him? Again, that's me. Remember, he explains to them in the scriptures everything concerning who? Himself. That's what it says, Luke 24. So he's going to explain to them who he is. So he says, I am the seed. The seed describes me, right? I am your safe house. The ark describes me. I am your substitute. I am the only way to glory. I am the staircase into heaven. I am the king. I'm the one to whom the scepter belongs. I am Shiloh. I am the spotless lamb. I am the scapegoat. I am the star. I am the seer. I am the son of David. So he'd move from Moses in the law to what? He'd move to the Psalms. He'd move to the prophets. And maybe he would reiterate that he's the, the son of David because that would be number 10 in our outline. And he would take them to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and explain to them that Davidic covenant, Psalm 89 that he was a son of David. Of course, they would know that the Messiah would be the son of David because that was the identity of their coming Messiah. And then maybe he would move from the Psalms to, from Psalm 89 to Psalm 118 and speak about how he is that stone, that stone of stumbling. And explain to them that he was that only rock, that chief cornerstone that the Jewish nation would stumble over. And he moved from the fact that he was not just the stone of Israel, the rock of Israel, but he would move from there to help explain to them that he was the shoot in Isaiah 11, the netseer, the branch that would stem from the root of Jesse. And maybe he would take a moment to, to take them back to the etymology of the word and say that netseer, which is the sprout or the, the shoot or the branch that stems from the root of Jesse, is rooted in the word Nazareth, and that's where his hometown was. He's called Jesus the Nazarene, and maybe he would explain that to them so they would understand his identity all the more. But he would take them back to help them understand that he was the fulfillment of the shoot that would stem from the root of Jesse. And maybe he would take them back to Isaiah chapter, chapter 61, Isaiah chapter 11, where it says that the Spirit of the Lord would, would descend upon me, would be upon me. And you would know about the baptism John the Baptist, and how the Spirit of the Lord descended upon me. And how he would quote Isaiah chapter 61 in his hometown in Nazareth to tell them that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him and he came to preach the gospel to those who were in prison, 
those who are downcast and downtrodden, to explain the favorable year of our Lord, to prove to them that the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, that he was the branch, the shoot from the root of Jesse. Maybe he'd move from Isaiah 11 back to Isaiah chapter, chapter 9 and say, remember what Isaiah the prophet said? When he said that for unto you a, a, a child will be born, but a son will be given. The son's not born. The child's born. The son is given. Speaking of the humanity and the divinity of this Christ child, of this Messiah, this was the hope of Israel. And this son that was given, this child that would be born, is called by a name. His name will be called Wonderful. His name will be called Counselor. His name will be called Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or Everlasting Father, or Originator of Eternity. And the government will be upon his shoulders and there will be no end to the increase of his government. Explain to them that he is the, the son of God. So they would understand that there's no discrepancy in what the Old Testament says and who he is. And maybe he would even, in his explanation of the Old Testament, tie in illustrations that took place in his life. And so maybe he would take them back to John chapter 5 and, well, not John 5 because it wasn't written then, but take them back in their memory to the pool of, of Bethesda, the house of mercy. And take them back to that one location because that's where, no pun intended, the tide began to turn against Messiah at the pool of Bethesda. Because in John's gospel, in the fifth chapter, we know these words about how Jesus healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. And when Jesus healed him, he had no idea who Jesus was. And the religious leaders began to ask them, how was it that he was able to walk on the Sabbath? It wasn't so much that he had been healed, it says that he was walking on the Sabbath. But they knew he'd been paralyzed for 38 years. And finally, he realizes who it was that healed him, that it was Jesus, and he tells them it was Jesus who healed him. So in John chapter 5, it says, my father is working, Christ says, until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18, for this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, that's a very important verse. Because he says, my father is working, so am I. He called himself the son of his father. He called himself the son of God. And no self-respecting Jew would ever refer to God as his own father in a personal way. Never. Only in a national sense. No Jew ever referred to God as father in a personal sense. Only in a national sense. Because they couldn't do that. 
Because to be a son of God would mean to be equal in nature to God. And they are not. But Jesus is. That's why they wanted to kill him. Because he wanted to make himself equal with God. That's the definition of the word weos, the son of God. He was never called the briefos of God, the little born one of God. He's never called the technon of God, the, the child of God. He is called weos, the son of God. And that means equal in nature to God. Because weos never is a word of origin. Never. And so maybe in his explanation to these disciples, as he was explaining to them the scriptures from the Old Testament, remember now, he's doing this in a brief amount of time. He's going through the law of Moses. He's going through the Psalms. He's going through the prophets and connecting all the dots. That's what we're trying to do with you. Now, granted, we're not doing it like Jesus would do it, but I'm doing the best I can. So we're trying just to connect all the dots for you so you can see how this golden thread runs all throughout the Old Testament, screaming the Messiah. That's why in John chapter 5, in verse number 39, Christ says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me that you might have life. In other words, you're searching the scriptures, and you know what the Bible says. But how do you search the scriptures and miss me? That's a major problem. So we're trying to help you understand that as you read the scriptures, you can't miss Christ. You can't miss the Messiah. You must see him for who he is. So when the Greeks in John 12 came to Philip and said, sir, we wish to see Jesus, right? All we want to do every Sunday is help you see one person, Jesus. That's all that matters. Doesn't make a difference whether or not you see me or see any of your elders or see Tim up on stage or anybody playing the flute or the organ or the piano or whatever instruments that we might have, that's irrelevant. Do you see Christ? That's all that matters. And all we're doing is trying to follow the example of Jesus and going through the Old Testament to explain to you who he is. So maybe in this conversation, he's, he's telling them, I'm the son of God. That's why no one could take my life from me. I laid it down on my own initiative and took it up again because I'm God. I can do that. Nobody else can. I am the son of God. That's who I am. So maybe he moved from Isaiah chapter 8 to Isaiah chapter 9 to um, Isaiah chapter 11. And then maybe, maybe he would move a little further in Isaiah because Isaiah speaks a lot about the coming Messiah and move them a little further to help them understand that in the book of Isaiah, he not just is the stone, not just the shoot 
from the root of Jesse, not just the son of God, but he truly is the swallower of death. And of the 25 we're giving you, this is my favorite. The swallower of death. That's just a great description of the Messiah. Why is that? Because there are two times in Scripture, Isaiah 5, Proverbs chapter 1, that speak to us about the fact that death swallows man. Isaiah 5, Proverbs 1. That when the grave opens up, it swallows man. But when Christ came, he swallowed up death. Isaiah chapter 25 says these words. Isaiah chapter 25, verse number 8. He will swallow up death for all time. That's just a great statement. He's the swallower of death. Well, how did he do that? Well, he came, as Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 explained to us these words, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In other words, if you're an unbeliever, you are subject to the slavery of the fear of death. If you're an unbeliever, you fear death. If you're a believer, you don't. You don't. Because you believe in the swallower of death. The one who took it upon himself to make sure that you would no longer fear death because the unbeliever fears the unknown. The unbeliever fears that which he has no idea what's going to happen next. But we do. Amen. See? Amen. And we don't fear that because we know we're going to enter into the presence of God. We don't fear death. We might fear how we're going to die, right? We want to burn to death, right? You want to suffer through death, but you don't fear death itself. You don't. That's why Paul would say these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, quoting from Isaiah 25, verse number 8, he would say, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory over death. We have victory over sin. And the consequences of sin is death. But because we believe in the swallower of death, we don't fear death. Why? Because we're going to glory. We're going to the presence of our God. And so maybe he took time. Again, I wasn't there. So I don't know exactly what verses he went to in the Old Testament or how he explained it to them. But let me tell you something. If Jesus did it, you better make sure we do it. Because if Jesus did it, it must have been important. Because you see, you have to preach the Christ. You have to preach the Messiah. 
So people will repent so they receive the forgiveness of sins and you're to go into all the nations and do that. So you better know the identity of the Messiah. Because unless you believe in his name, you won't have life in his name. These are all descriptions. These are all attributes. These are all character qualities. These are not names of God. Again, let me tell you, he has one name. 800 times in the Old Testament. 200 times in the New Testament. That's 1,000 times the name of God is spoken. Never is it in the plural. Always in the singular. He has one name. It manifests itself in a myriad of descriptions and attributes and character qualities. But he has one name. For at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to him and are safe, right? Doesn't mean God's name is Mr. Strong Tower, but it is the attribute, it is the character, it is the quality of his name. And his name is his character, his name is who he is. You must understand that. That's why his name will be called. It doesn't say his names will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. No. His name, singular, will be called because it describes the variation of his character. So here is Jesus spending time with his men, having spent time with the two men on the road to Emmaus for seven hours, the seven or a seven-mile journey, so maybe it was seven hours, maybe it was shorter than that, I don't know. Seven-mile journey. Talking to them about the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. And then he reiterates the same thing to the rest of his men. How everything points to him. You see, they have to be able to connect all the dots themselves so that when they go out, they can preach the gospel with clarity. So people aren't confused. People need to know. So he takes them and says, I am the stone of Isaiah 8, the shoot of Isaiah 11, the son of God of Isaiah chapter 9, the swallower of death of Isaiah chapter 25. I am the solace of Israel, the comforter of Israel, the consolation of Israel from Isaiah chapter 49. For in Isaiah chapter 49, these words were spoken by Isaiah the prophet. And he said these words, shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. 
He is the comfort of Israel. Isaiah 40 is that great chapter of Isaiah that begins the whole comforting section from Isaiah 40 to 66 of how the Messiah will comfort, comfort his people Israel. That's why when you go to Luke chapter 2 and you read about Simeon, he was looking and longing for what? The consolation of Israel. The comfort of Israel. He was looking for the Messiah. Because there's only one person who brings consolation. It's the Messiah. He's the only one that can comfort your soul. Because he's the only one who can save your soul. So maybe... Maybe he would take them back to Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 40 and show him that I am the solace of Israel. And young Simeon, oh, old Simeon, because he was up in years, was promised that he would not die until he saw the Lord's Messiah. Because he was looking for that Messiah, the consolation of Israel. And maybe, I don't know, again, I wasn't there. But maybe he would take them to Isaiah 43, which you studied last night. It said that he was the savior of Israel. Not just the solace of Israel. Not just the son of God. Not just the shoot. Not just the stone of Israel but he was and is the savior of Israel. For in Isaiah chapter 43, these words are spoken. But now, thus says the Lord, O your creator, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Chapter 45, verse number 21 says these words. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God, and a Savior. There is none except me. Chapter 49, verse number 26 says, And all flesh will know that I am the Lord, that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. And she would tell them, That's why. They call me Jesus. Because in that name is my mission. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew 1, verse number 21. And so he explained to them, that's why God, my Father, named me Jesus. Because inherent in the name is salvation, and I am your Savior. And maybe, maybe, he would move from there and talk to them about today. That he was a servant 
of the Lord. There's only one servant, and he himself is that servant. So when you go back to the book of Isaiah, because he would spend time there, he would say, Isaiah 49, 3 says, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel in whom I will show my glory. Verse 5, and now says the Lord who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him so that Israel might be gathered to him for I am honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant. So you explain to them, I am God's servant. And of course, Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, explain to us the great self-emptying of our God who is the ultimate servant. Of course, the gospel of Mark is all about the, the servanthood of, of the Messiah. Again, I was not on the road to Emmaus and I was not in the room where Christ explained himself to his men by taking them back to the law of Moses, to the prophets, and to the Psalms. But some way he was going to connect the dots for them. He'd have to open their eyes so they could see because they were blinded. They did not understand. When you become a Christian, God removes the scales from your eyes, opens them so you can see and understand. So if anybody asks, what are you guys doing at your church for Christmas? Say, we're just connecting dots. That's all we're doing. They'll say, what? We're connecting dots. We're doing what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. We're doing what Jesus did. Are we doing as well as Jesus did? No, not at all. We're trying, but we're not going to come close. But he sets the example, does he not? And maybe, because i got four minutes left, maybe he would spend some time on, on one or two of them. Maybe he would spend some time on, on the stone of Israel. Do you know when the first time the Messiah is referred to as a stone is recorded in the Scripture? This is important. Yes, Genesis. Who said Genesis. Do you know how many times he's referred to as a stone in the scriptures? That too is important. Now, I don't know if Jesus said that to them or not, but Genesis chapter 49 is the first time the Messiah is referred to as a stone. And 14 times in the scriptures, the Messiah is referred to as a stone. That's important. First time, Jacob's blessing Joseph. As he blesses Joseph, I'm not even sure Jacob understood fully what he was saying. It was all inspired by God, right? But as he blesses his son Joseph, 
He speaks of the first coming of the Messiah and the second coming of the Messiah. He says, in verse 24, but his bow remained firm and his arms were agile from the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. In encompassing in that is the first coming Messiah as shepherd because Joseph was a type of Christ and the stone of Israel, the second coming. Remember Enoch prophesied about the second coming of the Messiah, not his first coming. And how would we know that? How do we know that the Messiah is the stone? Remember in Exodus chapter 17, and Israel was crying about no water, and and Moses says, you know, what do I do? They're going to stone me. He says, I want you to go to the rock. And the Lord says, I will stand on the rock. You strike the rock, and water comes out. So Moses does. Strikes the rock, water comes flowing out of there, right? When you come to Numbers chapter 20, Israel is once again complaining about there's nothing to drink. We have no water. And so they ask Moses, why have you done this? Why have you let us out to die in the wilderness? What is going on? And Moses is fed up with the people And the Lord says, take the rock or the rod and you and your brother Aaron assemble the congregation and speak to the rock. Before their eyes, that it may yield its water. You shall thus bring forth water for them out of the rock and let the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord just as he had commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly before the rock, and he said to them, Listen now, you rebels, shall we bring forth water for you out of the rock? Then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. The water came forth abundantly, and the congregation and their beasts drank. And then you had that famous Butology. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me or treated me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. God said to Moses, speak to the rock. Moses struck the rock. God says, because you didn't do what I said, you did not regard me as holy. Whenever you disobey what God says, no matter how small you might think it is, you no longer treat God as holy. And there are consequences. And Moses would never lead the people into the promised land. Now, to be fair, Exodus chapter 3 tells us that Moses would be the deliverer to deliver them out of Egypt. But God never said you'll deliver them out to bring them into the promised land. Never said that. 
because God knew it was going to happen. And Moses disobeyed the Lord. He struck the rock. And in striking the rock, he gave an inappropriate and inadequate picture of the Messiah. Because the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, these words. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. That's why the Lord said, I will stand on the rock. You strike the rock, right? And water will come forth so people will live. Second time he said, don't strike it because the Lord will only be stricken once, not twice. So speak to the rock and water will come out. Moses struck the rock. God still in his grace provided water for the people, but the consequences of Moses' sin kept him out of the promised land because he did not regard God as holy. Why not? Because he didn't think that what God said was that important. What he wanted to do was more important than what God said. And whenever you do that, you don't treat God as holy. You treat him as unholy. Amen. And therefore, there are consequences for that. So maybe Jesus would tell them, I'm the stone, but, but I'm the stricken stone. From Exodus chapter 17. And not only am I the stricken stone, I'm the stumbling stone of Psalm 118. And not only am I the stumbling stone, I am the scorned stone from Isaiah chapter 53 and Isaiah chapter 8. But you know what? I am the only satisfying stone from Isaiah 28. Because Isaiah 28 says that this stone who comes to this stone will never be disappointed. Why is he a satisfying stone? Because he's the only saving stone. Because there's no other name in heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, Acts 4.12. But in Acts 4.11, Peter speaks about the fact that this is the stone of stumbling. But this is the only name that can save you. So not only is he a stumbling stone for Israel, he's a, he's a saving stone, he's a, he's a satisfying stone, but he's also, he's also a superior stone. He is a significant stone, for he truly is a shattering stone. Because in Daniel chapter 2, there is a stone that's not cut out with hands. That means it's a supernatural stone. It's not a man-made stone. It's a stone not cut out with hands, that destroys the image of Nebuchadnezzar and brings it all down, shatters it. It's a shattering stone. And it's a superior stone because it was cut out of rock and the god of Nebuchadnezzar was Marduk and Marduk was worshipped was worshipped at a huge mountain. And this rock cut out of a mountain began to fill the whole earth and became a superior stone because he's a superior god. And maybe, just maybe, our Lord would spend time talking to them about 
how he is the stone of Israel. Not just any stone, but the most significant stone ever, the chief cornerstone, the stone you can count on. Because he is a saving stone, a satisfying stone. Yes, he is a stumbling stone because many will stumble over him. Yes, he is a shattering stone because Christ would quote that in the book of Matthew in the 21st chapter. Book of Matthew, chapter 21, and say these words. Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people, producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be shattered to pieces. But on whomever it fans, it will scatter him like dust. Our Lord is everything the Old Testament says he is. We must understand the identity of the Messiah. Because without that, you can't be saved. Jesus Christ is our Lord's Messiah. And hopefully today, I could have simply connected some dots for you to help you understand who he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. The opportunity you give us to study your word, we are truly a blessed people. Our prayer, Father, is that you would go before us. As we study your word each and every day, we would grow in the knowledge of our God. And in growing in that knowledge, everything about you would rub off on us in such a way it would alter our lives completely for your glory and your honor. Until you come again as you most surely will, in Jesus' name.